In our readings from Deuteronomy and Mark's Gospel, we heard the great prayer of Judaism called the Shema. The word Shema means hear, listen. The grammar is the imperative. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. This is God's first instruction to Moses on Mount Sinai. It is Israel's confession of faith. It is the bold proclamation to a pagan world then and to a pagan world today. There is only one God and that this God has chosen a people for himself to reveal this truth to all humanity. If we find the assertion that God is one, that he alone is the true God, not particularly earth-shattering, the fault lies within us. We have forgotten how man, relying on the limits of his fallen nature, so easily conjures up multiple gods and goddesses, or will it attribute to creation divine attributes, or believes there may be conflicts between the gods, between light and darkness, good and evil, or become caught up in superstitious fears, or reject God completely, and insist that man can create his own utopia on earth. It is so easy to slide into the paganism of our fallen nature. The Shema is designed to get in the face of our fallen nature and challenge it. There is but one God whole, total, complete within himself, implying that it is from him that all things exist, that all things owe their being to, and that they exist because for no other reason than God loves what he creates. The Shema implies that human beings are given the dignity being called to walk with God through history with the assurance that history has a purpose and will come to its proper end in him. Originally a prayer offered in the temple liturgy, the Shema was invested with so much meaning that very early on, centuries before Jesus' time, the rabbis brought it into the synagogue worship. Every devout Jew would not only recite the Shema daily, but take to heart his or her obligation to make sure that the next generation knew not only the words, but its meaning for one's personal and national communal relationship with God. In fact, towards the end of the Shema, it says, drill this into your children. The Shema is, in fact, so much more. But hopefully that gives a glimpse of why this is one of the most central, if not the most central prayers of the Judaism of Jesus' day and among religious Jews today. Now, our gospel reading has a scribe, a scholar of the law, asking Jesus a question. Which is the first of all the commandments? I know there's a lot of this Christian preaching out there that says, oh, this is trying to trip Jesus up. It is not. It is not. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, often went to synagogue for Shabbos. And this would be a common question asked of any rabbi. There is nothing to suggest that the scribe was laying a trap for Jesus. 
In fact, the scribe was paying a compliment to Jesus. I like to think that this scribe was present when Jesus, just a few verses earlier, had decimated the Sadducees in chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. You might remember that story. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they crafted this incredible story to show how foolish the resurrection is. Well, who are they talking to? He who is the resurrection and the life, and he reduces them to the basic elements of the universe. The scribe, so I would like to think, was favorably impressed with this rabbi from Galilee, and he desired to engage him in deeper thought. And Jesus was more than willing. He always is. So the scribe asked Jesus a Jewish question. How do you, Jesus, encapsulate the whole of the Torah, the whole of the law? What fundamental principle do you boil the whole law down to? And first Jesus recited the Shema from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Then he recited Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus concluded, there is no other commandment greater than these. The love of God and the love of neighbor are but one. You cannot claim to have one without the other. Genuine love, from a Jewish perspective, from Jesus' perspective, is not about having warm, fuzzy feelings about someone. Genuine love is expressed in concrete actions, in ethical behavior, in placing the other as important as the self, or perhaps at times as more important than the self. And just as God's love for man is expressed by sustaining us in creation and in acts of kindness and mercy, so it is man's duty to love God by extending acts of kindness and mercy and charity to his fellow man, to whom he is united in a common humanity. Otherwise, the love one claims to have for God is a sham. Now notice the scribe's response. He got the message, so much so I cannot help but think that it might have shocked other scribes, Pharisees, and most especially any temple priests who might have been in the area overhearing this conversation. He said to Jesus, you are right in saying he is one. There is no other than he. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is with more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is an incredible statement for a Jew to make. The scribe was not rejecting the temple sacrifices. But he correctly saw that to genuinely love God requires one to love one's neighbor in concrete ways, to treat one's neighbor with mercy and kindness, to treat one ethically, that such a love is of a higher order than sacrificial offerings. What the scribe could not have possibly known, but Jesus certainly did, was that the time of the temple's destruction and the end of sacrificial offerings was rapidly approaching. 
Jesus was very impressed with the sincerity of the scribe. And he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not there yet, but you're not far. Now, what did Jesus mean? The scribe went as far as he possibly could. Do not doubt this was the work of grace. He did not yet recognize who Jesus really was, God in the flesh. But then again, neither did his apostles at this point. Perhaps somewhere down the road he would. But he was definitely on the right path. We, however, claim to know who Jesus is. We call him Savior. We say he is God. We call him Lord, and rightly so. But then comes the question. Does our knowledge of this truth compel us to see that loving God must be concretely expressed in loving the neighbor? St. John Chrysostom, back in the fifth century, once wrote, the majesty of God is best honored through lowly service to the needy neighbor, not by words alone.